0: Mm -hmm.
1: Which is the better Iron Maiden album? Is it Somewhere in Time? Or is it Power Slave? I mean, this is one of the big questions. On the one hand, of course, Power Slave is front-loaded with Aces High, Two Minutes to Midnight, Side B, of course... You know, you've got the title track, um, you've got Rhyme with the Ancient Manor, but you also have the Duelists and Back in the Village, whereas Somewhere in Time, I don't know, it's a very complicated choice. We were discussing that in the studio yesterday for quite a long time, it seemed, when we should have been getting on with whatever other work there is to do. I mean, there's always a um, hundred different things to do in the studio. You should be, well, I should have been prepping my lyrics, going through books, listening to rough mixes, all this kind of thing. We should have been tweaking guitar tones. We should have been listening intently to the bass drum, thinking to ourselves, this needs a little bit more body at 400 hertz or whatever the um, the real issues of the day may be. Yet instead, we were discussing which was the better Iron Maiden album, Somewhere in Time or Power Slave. I'm inclined to fall just about on the side of the fence that it was Power Slave, but I also could be convinced that it was Somewhere in Time. So, in the end, Nothing was done, nothing was achieved. Um, We could have had a democratic vote, but there was only four of us, and I think it was a a split room. It was two on one side and two on the other. Um, That's democracy, folks. Welcome to episode 151 of Agitates Anonymous. I am Alan Averill, singer in a heavy metal band, trying to make some sense of all the things. Well, anyway. So, you can follow the links in the description to the sponsors. They are Metal Blade Records. Um, 40 years and counting of incredible history, amazing records throughout all of the years. You can go to uh, IndieMerch.com uh, slash Metal Blade records, and you can use AA2023 as your promo code. You'll get 10% off your order and that ships worldwide. You know you need those 90s Merciful Fate albums. If you don't own them and you keep on waxing lyrical about how incredible Melissa and Don't Break the Oath are, which you can also get on Picture Disc. There at the um, at the link, you should listen to those nineties records. They are absolutely incredible. Also, we have another sponsor, and if you've seen Promodia live, you will have seen we have these huge backdrops, um, fireproofed, treated um, with all the eyelets to be hung, all that kind of stuff properly. Professional backdrops. Email yes at ToroDrops.com, T-O-R-O, use the promo code A-L-A-N. If you're in a band and you think you need a backdrop, it doesn't matter, from the hugest stage at a festival to a small bar show, these are the best prices you will get from Digital Image. Um, So use the promo code A-L-A-N. Or, alternately, if somehow you um, can not get to a pen and paper and get that down in time for that information, just DM me and I will pass you along to the people involved. So last week in the studio for primordial for the new album number ten. Um what do you do in the last week? Um I mean look, we've been um myself and the engineer have been residential up in the studio or near to the studio, um quite a few miles away, way, way up in the Dublin Mountains, no coverage, um, no real internet up there, all that kind of thing, uh, which actually is very interesting. Um, It just shows you, you do get some of your attention span back. We have what's called the green room, which is kind of, I guess, the communal room, uh, which is behind the studio. And because it has no coverage at all and no internet, um, you find yourself actually reading books. Remember doing that? Or just watching movies? I brought up two box sets of Clint Eastwood Movies And have now, um, yesterday was uh, the outlaw Josie Wales, Pale Rider. Um, I think I was even inspired a little bit for one of the lyrics that was missing something by a sentence or two from Pale Rider. Maybe if you are that attentive to the lyrics, if you're a lyrics bot, um, you can spot that reference. But how you get your attention span has been quite interesting to observe. You get it back because the impulse to pull out your phone just isn't there. Um, because you just simply can't. So what you're doing before you're mixing, um, and I suppose I should explain. I'll explain mixing in a while. Um, I suppose it's easy when you're in a band to um, consider that everybody understands all these terms and how a record is made, how the sausage is made. But most people, I suppose most people don't. So what you're doing before mixing is especially when you're making songs kind of quickly, there's a lot of trial and error involved. Primordial is not a band who sits at home prepping all the time and working out riffs and trading files. I've discussed all that kind of stuff before. Um, so what you're doing is you're recording, and mostly in the last week you're recording overdubs on the guitar. You try and put down some bass, you try and put some uh, down some rhythm guitar. As you're recording drums, you go back, you fix a few mistakes. We don't fix that many mistakes. There's often, um, you know, small little errors. I think that's, you know... It's what makes the whole process human. But what you're doing is you're listening to rough mixes, you know, kind of, and considering things like, well, this section of this song goes on for two minutes. Does it need... Um, A harmony, does it need a lead, does it need some whoa, 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 back in vocals, set way back. There's actually lots of things in the recordings that end up being dropped when you get to the mixing process. Um, All sorts of strange things that you put into the songs that when you have that little bit of space before you finally mix or master, you decide to drop. Some of you may, um, let me think of a reference point. If you think of So Far So Good So What, the Megadeth album from 1988, absolute classic album. One of my favorite Megadeth records. Um, And well, just one of my favorite records. It's a very dark record, but it's a very hollow, strange sounding record. Um, I think a lot of drugs went into that album. But Dave Mustaine in the 90s, I think late 90s, went and remixed and sort of rejigged all those records. I presume it was a contractual thing. Could have all been an egotistical thing. Either way, he um, completely fucked up, especially Countdown to Extinction which had an incredible mix, with these modern bass drum and snare. Now, I think the original versions are back on Spotify, but if you want to hear the original versions, try and root out the original mix of so As So Good So What, not the uh, re-jigged sort of jigged version. But let's get deep into this now, and deep, deep Megadeth cut. If you're talking about Into the Lungs of Hell, which is the intro to so As So Good So What, the original, of course, um, has a bit of acoustic guitar on it. It's quite a strange-sounding song. Um, it's a great song. It's a great way to introduce the album but Mustaine obviously had recorded all of these things in the 80s that were then um you know cut out of the mix so you can find what sounds like a horn section like some sort of trumpets or keyboards or something um there's an enhanced so all sorts of enhanced parts moving in the background of the song and um, that were obviously taken away in the final mix um i don't know why quite why dave has done that because I think it's partly misunderstanding your uh, your canon of work because Versicles so so of What is so iconic to go messing about with it, adding solos, adding harmonies, pushing them up in the mix. Um, I don't think that's really uh, the right thing to do. Um, I think they were return to their former glory. Um, and there's some box sets and all sorts of things. I should really discuss this with Joe from Gamma Bomb on the Metal Salvage chats. But within every album recording, there are things that you just sort of, Um, If you have the luxury of a little bit of a time and space, you remove. Um, There's a version of Redemption at the Puritan's Hand, which is kind of like a rough mix demo version, which is on our Spotify, Promodial Spotify. And there are slightly alternate structures, different vocals, um, some different backing vocals. Sometimes you realize that you overcooked something, that there's too much singing. And if you have the luxury of... Um, having a few days in, uh, between finishing the recording and starting the mix where you go home and you listen to the kind of rough versions and you go, that doesn't really work. We've overcooked that and we've put too much into that. Well, then you take things out. So there's all these things within the recording that never quite make the cut. They could be guitar solos. They could be a bass slide, which just ends up being too, um, you know, too noisy. A lot of times it's vocals because the thing with the singing is that it's very um, objective or subjective, not objective, subjective in the sense that what makes sense to me um, and I, this only happened the other day. Um, we have one, We had one song on the album that literally had no singing yet. The guys had rehearsed it. I'd only kind of made noises over it, barked over it once. You can hear my voice as being a bit um, as being under a lot of pressure the last few days. Actually, I burst a blood vessel in my eye. Um, it looks like I've got the pink eye. Um, I certainly haven't. Um, I burst a blood vessel in my eye singing. There's a lot of very hard, very kind of high singing on this record. Um, the album, I think the tone is more heavy metal, a bit more epic. But yeah, I burst a blood vessel in my eye, so my eyes completely red, along with whatever else I've been doing to my vocal cords. But there was this one song that we had been rehearsing and I'd just been going, blah, blah, just making noises over it. You can hear this. A good example of this is, and justice for all, there are demos of Injustice for All, um, Harvester of Sorrow, and James is just going, you know, rah, rah, <laughs> <laughs> whatever. He's just making noises instead of the lyrics. So he hasn't got the lyrics figured out yet. Brilliant lyrics, by the way. One of the darkest um, songs. And one of the, you, know, you know, the tone of Injustice for All is so pessimistic. I love it. But Harvester of Sorrow is one of my favorite, but also one of the darkest Metallica songs, I think. However, um, I'd just been kind of making noises over the song in rehearsal. So finally, um, you know, the guys are sitting in there, you know, milling around the studio and I do my singing and they're looking at me like, Rot, really, you're going to start singing there? Because when they were rehearsing the song um, and I was listening to it, what I had as the start point, i.e. verse one, is not remotely what they had as a start point. In fact, they had it as a, as a bridge. So I start about, you know, one minute 45 into the song, which is not unusual for Primordial if the songs are six, seven, eight minutes long, that you have a big kind of intro riff and then it changes and then it doesn't return. So what I'd picked out as the verse riff never quite returned. So we're in the studio and everybody's looking at each other and they're looking at me going, really, that's where you're going to start? And I was going, well, that seems what's obvious to me. And of course, they rightfully said to me, well, you should have mentioned that when we're rehearsing it. But when you're moving so quickly trying to get songs written, sometimes... You just only hear something once or twice or three times. Um, And as you may know, my attention to detail is not quite what it used to be. However, my start off point was not what their start off point was. So what you have to do um, through trial and error is just go and, you know, um, fuck off to a back room somewhere in the studio and rethink your approach. And what that can do is uh, completely change the context of the song. And also, whatever the melody you had in your head isn't going to work now that you have to place that over another part of the song. So, an awful lot of what um, being the singer in the studio is is you're called on at a certain moment, just like now. Okay, you've got to perform now. You've got to get in the um, you know the zone or whatever. You've got to get your vibe. You've got to get your head correct. You've got to concentrate, focus. And I find two or three hours of really focused singing. Um, is as good as a day but you shouldn't singing for a whole day is just brain frying because you've got the headphones on and don't forget every time you sing a line you then have to hear it back and it's the constant if you can imagine having a big pair of headphones on and somebody just constantly flicking um, your Spotify or whatever you're playing music through uh, your headphones on, off, on, off, on, off at quite a loud volume because I sing very loud, um, and just all day, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, and the electrical hum, because in a studio, there's so many things plugged in. You've got this whoo, constant hum that's everywhere, and it really starts to get in your brain. And at the end of the day, after singing all day, you are literally shattered. No, I'm not saying it's the equivalent of working in a mine somewhere. Um, of course not, Um there are far harder jobs, but certainly your brain is just um, melted, as we say in Ireland. You're a tuna melt. You're a melter. Um, I'll explain that some other time. But um, yes, it's it, it just melts your brain. And every evening you just have this pounding migraine because the noise of your own voice in your head is very, very loud. Some of you have heard me talk before about in-ear monitors, which are the little headphones Uh, that you put in your ear so you can hear the singing instead of monitoring in front of you, which is great if you're struggling with your voice, which I, you know, can hear I am now, and you're feeling a bit ragged around the edges with the voice, it's great. But it also insulates the sound of your own voice in your head, which is fine if you don't sing that loud. But if you sing at like, you know, really hard volume, it can really um, give you a headache. But of course, a gig is an hour, an hour and a half. If you're going to do that for... Uh, 10 hours a day. Yeah, every night you come home and it's just like a pounding migraine behind your ears. Anyway, whoa is me. Woe is me. But what you're doing with the last those last <clears throat> few days before you do the singing, apart from trying to not get a cold, trying not to get flu, like we had massive snowstorms here in Dublin um, where um, there was like two or three feet of snow outside the place where we were staying. Now that's how you lose your voice is going inside, outside, inside, outside, heat, warmth, um out into the cold and breathing. And this is really, really bad for your voice. So uh, it's also a good excuse to not carry anything and sit inside all the time. But this is how you will lose your voice. So you're conscious of that. You're conscious of not trying to, you know, I don't know, pick up um, you know, a virus that might be floating around in the uh, ether somewhere. Um, you really don't want to be sick. So you're trying to sort of avoid that, but also not think about it at the same time. Because uh, you can, you know, you don't want to think yourself sick either. So you're trying to be on top form. You're trying to be well slept. You're trying to be well hydrated, my friends. Um, hydrate. That's my uh, today's advice. Um, write that down somewhere. Stay hydrated. So, but what you're trying to do then is you're trying to listen to what's going on with the structures and then some some vocalists do guide vocals um, while the drums and everything else is going down. I have done that in the past, but tend not to. Um, but what you're doing then is listening all the time and you're, you're trying to make notes. So I have about seven or eight books of lyrics over all the years, 30 years um, of writing nonsense down. And sometimes you're short for lyrics and you're looking back over what you've done and you think to yourself, what am I trying to say here? with these songs. Um, You're trying to fix the mood of the song. There's a very upbeat song on the new album that reminds me of the very first song on the first primordial album, Fui L'Arsa. And we give songs funny names and the song is called High on Fui L'Arsa because it also reminds me of um, the very great High on Fire. Um, And I think that um that particular song you're just I was just sitting going okay so what is the mood here what what is the vibe what am I t- what am I trying to achieve and you're looking back through your lyrics and you're writing other notes and you're robbing lines from pale rider as it happens to be playing in the background but you're trying to do a lot of prep you're trying to be ahead of the curve of where the songs are because when it comes to that moment where you've got a couple of hours to sing um you, you, you can't afford to get bogged down. So I tend to do, um, try and do one of the songs I, I did in uh, one take all the way through at about 11 p.m. That just happened to just flow out. That was great. That can happen. But sometimes you're back and forth over a couple of lines. I tend to do, I will only do three or four takes or something before my patience wears thin and I just move on. I don't get stuck into something for an hour or two. My patience doesn't allow me to do that. And I tend to grumpily just go, look, this is just how my voice is. It won't be perfect. It is what it is. Leave it. Um, So little oohs and little weird fallouts and things and the Irishness, um, you know, what's the big idea? Um, Whatever the Irishness within your accent is, it's how you are. It's how you speak. Um, So you leave it in. But also what you're trying to do is you're trying to have some perspective on where other people were coming from from with their songs so for paul and kieran are writing songs and i'm trying to think okay well what is the lyric that best complements also what they're trying to achieve but also what you're trying to do is lay out your pieces of paper mentally um of you know think about the running order the running order is very important and this album looks like it will have 10 songs on it which is a lot for primordial so some albums have seven and eight songs so you're thinking about the running order. What song impacts the first? Now, some people have come to me and go, oh yeah, you're going to start with another Empire Falls, etc." And people who tended to like the more obscure openings of the older albums, Journey's End and stuff. Um, And that's, that's, I think, unfair. I mean, the process of songwriting means that I think naturally you um, grow into more of, um, you know, as you have more albums, you obviously have more similarities, but also you're putting in big courses. But, very often you think about the running order and you think, OK, we're going to front load this album with the big knockout blow first, you know, deliver the punch first to hook everybody in. Um, you know, the other guys may think about it differently, but starting off with a huge big three or four or five minute obscure intro into the dirgiest song um isn't i think necessarily the best idea it can be in the middle of the record that's no problem but the running order is something that you're already starting to think about as you begin to have the songs begin to form proper names and they begin to have more uh, vocals put on them but also what you're doing is you're thinking about the artwork and the aesthetic now very much what i like to do personally um in that it kind of falls to me to move along the artwork and the aesthetic in parallel with the person that you're working with for the artwork um, is to have about half a dozen different ideas moving at the same time which is of course a nightmare for the artist because they're kind of pushing things in different directions but I will come up with the images the idea the aesthetic and we sort of push the boat out in several different directions the reason for that is because you don't want to be left um, short where the label are going or whoever is going okay on April the 1st let's pick that day because um, well I mean <laughs> because it's over um, April Fool's Day um, <clears throat> and and um, you know, what better date to pick as our hand-in date? In fact, that may very well be the hand-in date where you have to give everything over the label. However, the point is...
0: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you.
1: If you get to uh, March the 28th and uh, somebody goes, I don't really like that cover. And you've got like, well, what? So we've pushed the boat out so far. Now we have to turn around and head back to the port and set out again. We're never going to get as far. And you've also committed the artist to a certain direction. Then you're telling them, no. So it can be, I think, as the singer, as the person who's in charge of the aesthetic, you should be kind of well-prepped, well-prepared for a couple of different eventualities, have a couple of different covers that you like, which might be incredibly different, I'm moving at the same time, so as you aren't left going uh, scrabbling around, going, well, "Well, you know, we need a new thing," because within most bands there are different people who have different jobs or different angles or viewpoints. One person maybe is better at aesthetics or interpreting the overall aesthetic, um, but if you have if your band is a relative democracy, then you grant some form of veto power to every member. So if somebody really dislikes. Um, I really don't like that cover. Why? I don't know why. Um, not pointing any fingers, of course, but what happens then is you're left you might be left going, Oh God, um we've got three days to find a new cover. How do we do this? Anyway, more discussion of the album to come, no doubt. Um I'm you know, I don't have that much really to else to discuss at the moment because it's the sort of focus of most of my attention. But I thought I'd spend the second half of the podcast talking about a few other things. Um the band Igor, who are actually label mates of ours, I-G-O-Triple-O-R. Um, it's a story about them refusing to sell their merchandise at the O2 Forum Kentish Town in London, which I'm pretty sure we've also played. Um, And I thought I'd uh, discuss something I've discussed before, and that is um, the kind of the stealing of bands' merch. Now, it's no surprise I'll be on the side of musicians. I always am, because fundamentally... It's the un- it's the dealing with the uncomfortable nature of business, along with art, and the truth is that almost at the end of every um, industry, um, well, that's you know the music industry is what we're talking about. But musicians are at the always at the end of the chain. Everyone else takes their money first, um, and the basic principle of you know fairness or equity is just a kind of something most people pay lip service to in the music industry. Um, you would be surprised at how much. Um, when somebody would say, oh, well, we got a €10,000 fee for playing X festival. People go, wow, €10,000. Once you break down all the commissions, all the taxes of the paying of crew, the exorbitant price of flights which come from that, now you will be very surprised how little is left of that these days. The truth is that the post-pandemic world musicians are making less and less and less, and everybody is trying to squeeze them for more and more and more. I'm even just hiring a van in Europe right now to get from A to B. Um, the price seems to have gone up two, 300% what you could have found for 200, 250 euro. Now quotes are coming in. Quotes are coming in to, um, for bands I'm dealing with or even for promodial of, oh, that's going to cost 650 euro to drive you from A to B. Like what? 650 euro? Um, insanity. Um, everybody else's excuses. Well, we made no money in the pandemic either. Yes, of course. But the idea of like squeezing artists mercilessly. Remember the fact without artists. There would be none of this industry. And that's just the, um, you know, that's the utopian response to everything. But Igor basically said this. Um, We'd like to inform you that we won't be selling our merch at our London show tonight. The Venue02 0 forum, Kentish asking for a 25% cut on our merch sales, wrote Igor on an Instagram post. We could have raised up the prices of our T-shirts and hoodies, but it doesn't seem fair to have our UK fans paying more than they should. Very commendable reproach from the band there especially because the venue is acting for a spectacular percentage for no particular reason we tried to negotiate with them but they're not interested in helping us at all for those of you who would like to purchase some merchandise online our web shop will be updated with new designs after the tour now I've talked about this before I remember having this argument Promodio um, played a show in Orange County in the USA before and we've said okay we'll sell our merch after the show uh, outside from our van or wherever we were in and the, lab, uh, the venue called Um, the cops on us and said we were open vendor sellers um, without a license basically um, here is the response then you know uh, Cult of Luna also label mates of Metal Blade of, of ours with Primordial and this must stop touring post covid is a completely different world is a struggle and from some bands an economic nightmare yep i can attest to that um the primordial tour that we just did last year despite okay not having an album in a couple of years some of the attendances were you know between 4 and 600 people really really strong but personally as a musician um, i made less than i did from a tour that was less well attended previously to that and um, you're making less money you're you're you know the the bands are facing exorbitant costs of energy and oil and petrol crisis. Um, Just the hiring of every single thing, whether it's backline instruments, all have gone up. Flights have gone up. Luggage have gone up. The pressing of T-shirts, everything. Um, Anyway, merch sales are a huge part of our touring touring budgets. Uh, Well, as I always return to um, Tom Hunting from Exodus said it best. In an interview, uh, he said, we're traveling T-shirt salesmen. And merch sales are a huge part of our touring budgets, and the reason some bands, including us, we're talking about Cult of Luna now, are able to continue to provide the show we want to invest in good production, pay our team, etc. We refuse to raise merch prices because some venues are asking for merch guns and this is becoming a norm. We stand with Igor. Um, yeah, Damnation Festival. Yeah, the good people at Damnation Festival chimed in as well, saying they're happy for bands to play the festival and take will take no cut from merch. Converge drummer Ben Kohler voices support for Igor and the aforementioned statements calling the merch cuts a shakedown. Yeah, shakedown is a good, a good kind of 70s expression for what they are. I'm glad this topic is picking up steam. I agree with Damnation Festival and Igor here. Merch cuts are a total shakedown and make it harder for bands to survive. 25% is absolutely ridiculous. I see fans getting confused about merch prices being so high. Well, here's the fine print, folks. As the corporate takeover of music venue continues, I can only see this problem getting worse. Very good point by Mr. Ben Kohler there. And I should probably devote a proper podcast to all of this. But this is what is happening, is that huge, big, um, I suppose, multinational conglomerates or um, corporate corporatist takeovers of venues, um, as Ben here says, um, they're just beginning to buy up all the venues and their are standard practices. This is how it is. We take 20, 25% of your merch. If you don't like it, we'll fuck off and play somewhere else. Um, you know, you're talking about the Live Nations, I guess, or whatever else. They just own everything. And that's, you know, the, you can see this echoed across many, many other industries, whether it's you're trying to rent a house or buy a house at the moment, you will find elements of the same discussion, centralized power, more centralized ownership. It, it's the same with the media. And they control the narrative, and just so this similar to the music industry, they control. They control the um, this percentage, and there's nothing bands can do because bands don't have a lobby, they don't have a union. If you make a huge, huge fuss about it, um, then you know you'll get blackballed from festivals. I've said it before on the podcast, but you know merch percentages. If you bring your merch to a festival and they have merch sellers there, uh, people working all day. Um, uh, You know, I'm not averse to paying them. They should be paid a flat fee for their work. But of course, the festival itself wants a cut of your merch. But the truth is that merch must come from net, not gross. And that I never see this in that you'd have a gross number taken in on the day. Let's call it um, 5000 euro, for example, for argument's sake. Well, that's probably a bit much, but let's say 2000 euro and they want their 25 percent. From 2000 euro, right, which is 500 euro of your merch, which is just taken straight off the top. That is your profit margin, um, but it should never come from gross. It should come from net because bands have costs. It's like saying to a beekeeper, hey, we don't care for fuck how you get your honey to the shelves, uh, the packaging, the transport and whatever else. We don't care about any of your costs. We're just taking, um, just put it on the shelf and we're going to take our percentage from it. Bands, of course, have uh, artwork costs. Somebody has to be paid for the making of the shirt, the making of the art, the pressing of the shirt, the printing of the shirt, um, the shipping of the shirt, which is a huge cost these days. Um, Also luggage, if if you're bringing it from home on the plane, there's luggage costs. All of these must be factored in to that cost. So, That the twenty or fifteen or twenty or twenty-five percent that any any venue or merch um, or festival is taking, um, it has to come from net, not gross. It's it's basically like saying, well, nothing, um, you know, nothing, um, none of the costs that a band um, absorb to put that shirt on the shelf matter. Of course, this is just unfortunately the byproduct of this uncomfortable relationship between business and art. And for 60, 70 years, the music industry itself has, of course, ripped off musicians. I mean, that's part of what a record contract is fundamentally or was, um, whether it's all the musicians back in the old days of chess records or all the blues musicians who never got paid for playing on huge records. That's just been the nature of it. Now, um, a couple of my friends, my my good friend, uh, Tal, um, you may probably know him, um, they very great and wonderful. Tal, who just works for tons and tons of bands, may he made a post, and that is he said, um, "I'm going to continue with this article." But merch cuts have become a hot topic lately, mostly due to the overall rising cost of touring. Yeah, merch cuts are exactly what they sound like—a cut of the band's revenue made from merchandise that goes to the venue promoter. Monuments. I don't know this band, um, but they recently refused to sell merchandise in Greece due to insane cuts. Um, while our own. Um... Well, I've discussed the I've discussed Gojira, I think, before, and there, you know, look, they have expensive merch, and this is probably the, one of the reasons why. But uh, Architects, I don't really know the band Architects, but drummer Dan Seal recently posted, posited, you know, it's a better word actually, posited is a good word. Maybe band should get a cut of the venues' nightly alcohol sales to balance things out. Yeah. Um, while Lord Ahriman, ah, I know the Lord Ahriman from Doctor Who has said outright venues are killing the live music industry. Um, Yeah, I mean, look, it's a business practice that unless bands stick together and refuse to book those venues, but that's just not going to happen. I think probably what needs to happen is that fans need to literally start publicly shaming, taking pictures and just atting whatever venues, at venue, at venue, at venue, at venue. Bad publicity is maybe one of the only ways this will change. But the idea that um, a band would come to a venue and go, hey, we want 10% of your alcohol sales. I mean, it's their crowd coming in, right? They are there. The band have brought the crowd. That's their fans. So saying to the venue, well, you know, our fans are drinking X amount at your venue. Can we have a cut of your alcohol? sales? So, of course, every venue manager would go, well, fuck you. It's not going to happen. Um, but I understand the logic. It's similar. Right. Um, But it's becoming more and more of a thing because so many bands now are going out on tour. And coming back with less money, if basically no money and all of the costs are, um you know, passed on to bands. I mean, like I said, having just done a tour post pandemic, um we got from one week to the next rising costs of three, four hundred euro a day for the tour. Just for, just passed on to us. Nobody else is willing to take up any of it or cut their commissions or cut their fees or help us out. They're just like, nah, this is what it costs. But of course, you've been advertising your tour. And what are you going to do? Cancel your tour? Um, Because of 400 euro a day extra costs, you can't. So, But you add up 400 euro a day over 20 days, and you've got a huge chunk of your income all of a sudden has just been taken from you. And then you show up to X venue, and they go, well, um, here's a table, and here's uh, some chairs. Uh, We want 15% of your merch. Um, I don't quite know how this resolves itself until we actually have moral and equitable people, such as the very lovely people at Damnation Festival. Um, I did their podcast, actually, by the way. I don't know if um, any of you watched that, but I was a streak of pessimism that day, my friends. <laughs> it may surprise you. But Damnation Festival have the right attitude, which is this is how bands are able to survive, to get to the festival. Um, you know, the, you've know, you heard probably the expression rent-stealing, Um in relation to other things in society lately. And this is a kind of form of rent stealing, which is, um, it's just taking, uh, that 25, 20, 20, 25% margin for bands. And this, this, the, the rent or the merch thing happens much more in the USA than it does in Europe. Um, I encountered it almost every single night in the USA. Um, and I did get the impression that it was a kind of a kickback to the booking agent promoter as well, but we'll leave that aside. Um, but merch is one of the few ways that bands can make anything. And that twenty twenty five percent is their profit margin. But, of course, I just feel that the industry just doesn't give a fuck because bands don't stick up for each other until huge bands, the Judas Priests, the Iron Maidens, the whoever it is of this world go, you know what, we're sticking our neck out for the small guy. We're at the end of our career in the last chapter. We've made enough money Um And people like Rob Halford or Steve Harris start to call out this practice um, or magazines or advertisers or the people who, um, you know, can change the narrative here. And also to people going to shows. um, If you've gone to a show and you've gone, you've taken a picture for your Instagram, which is like uh, at the band, shame on you for the price of your merch. Think about the Think about the side story to this. Think about what it costs to put that merch there on the table and think to yourself, maybe I'll ask the merch person, like, what's the story? What's happening here? Why is the t-shirt 40 euro? And they go, well, you know, the venue wants this, that, the other. Then take a fucking picture and at the venue. That's all I can say. Of course, I've had this discussion many, many times with people and they've said to me, well, Alan, you know, um, you do realize the more noise you make about this, the more it's going to affect your band in that people probably are going to go, fuck that band, I'm not booking them. Um, yeah. And that's the problem. Until so many bands stand together and the fans demand that venues drop this, it won't um, It won't really go anywhere. And will it go anywhere anyway? Well, who knows? But I just thought it would be interesting to talk about. Um, and fair play to Igor for trying to make a stand on this whole situation. But bands, remember, put it into your contract net, not gross. There can't be um, festivals can't just take money off the gross number because it costs you money break to get that shirt to the shelf it's like in any industry like i said i don't know i used um i was thinking of that earth record what is it Bees made honey in the something skull or whatever it was was knocking around my head as an example because i quite like the artwork um but whether you're a farmer and it's like saying you know the shop says to you well we don't really give a fuck how you um you know what your costs are in putting that milk into that, you know, um, carton or container or whatever else. Um, fuck all your costs to get it. Just get it on the shelf and we're going to take our percentage. There isn't really an industry that says we have no costs of production. Um, just only, just, you know, just magic your product out of nowhere. Anyway, I think what I should do is try and get some of these people maybe onto a, a sort of group chat podcast thing and discuss this situation. Um, If you're listening and you know any of these people, I'm sure I know a few of them, um, I might try and exactly get them on the podcast to discuss the situation because it is crazy and it has to change. I mean, um, you know, bands, I I mean, I wasn't going to talk about it, but I might as well just, uh, um, you know, put it at the end. It's not really for heavy metal, but Spotify introduced this um, this new element to their platform, which was, I think, called Developing Bands or something like this. And that's their new discovery mode uh, idea program, which basically uh, for new up- upcoming younger bands and I suppose for older bands as well, or labels or people putting music up, they can um, they can put their music into this thing called discovery mode, which is a rather um, vague term. And what it is is that Spotify will then um, theoretically put you, f- you know, push your music on playlists, and for that you have to accept an even smaller um an even smaller royalty now to put it into perspective and i think i discussed this before spotify pays not point not 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 5 per stream if i'm not incorrect so to accept even less than that i mean you're ver- it's virtually negligible so what they're saying is hey we might push you on a playlist it might work for you it might not for that you have to accept literally nothing i mean it was already minuscule um, you know, they're heralding it as some sort of incredible, you know, opportunity for breakthrough. And look, how, you know, there's been X many streams, but they're probably all weighted to a tiny handful of artists for whom this benefited. But it's basically just saying, hey, we rip you off already. Um, if you, you know, want uh, to move to our Discovery Mode program, um, then you'll just give it give us it for nothing. I don't know if it counts for a certain amount of time or whatever else. But again, just more examples of the artist being squeezed and squeezed and squeezed. And um, I didn't want to start getting into it in the last five, ten minutes of the podcast. But I just thought I'd throw it in there as a as a further mention. I don't know if labels are going to start mentioning this for bands. I really don't think it's going to help metal bands. I mean, does it mean that, you know, there's a new metal playlist and your new song is going to be sitting there alongside Ghost, alongside the new Metallica. Maybe that's how it will work, and you will all of a sudden jump from, um, you know, 5,000 monthly listeners to eight, and then back down once the, um, you know, the tide has moved, you know, the tide has gone out on your release time-wise. Um, but again, just feels like another example of the industry squeezing artists even more. Is there an equitable way to buy merch? I mean, it's it's realistically, it's called Bandcamp, but if you think that you're buying merch from Spotify, for example, for bands and it's anything is going to the bands. It doesn't. That's a third party merch company that's licensing um, shirts from somewhere else. Um, and nothing goes to the band as far as I can see. So uh, Bandcamp remains pretty much the only equitable solution out there. Anyway, my friends, it's a, you know, that's all industry talk today in the podcast because my life has been sort of occupied with nothing else. Um, the joy of making music and being creative, and the dastardly deeds of the music industry. My friends, episode 151 of Agitators Anonymous. um, Normal service will resume with our next Tuesday's heavy metal miscellany. Um, We shall see you next time. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready
0: to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget?